The 8A program, it's a piece of federal jargon that's come to symbolize how the government helps small businesses get their fair share of contracting dollars. Now the underlying assumptions of the 8A program are under challenge in court. Could this be the end of 8A? We get analysis now from the managing partner of Center Law and Consulting, Barbara Kanoski. Barbara, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you having me. And I'm going to read back your own sentence, and then you can translate it into English for us about what's actually going on. A company called Ultima Services has, quote, asking the court to enjoin the government from exercising options to 8A contracts with contractors that received the rebuttable presumption of social disadvantage for admittance into the 8A program. So what's going on? Well, Ultima is owned by a white woman who is ineligible. Well, I wouldn't say ineligible, could apply, but under more rigorous criteria to the 8A program. So she's back in court again, asking that SBA and the Department of Agriculture remove certain NAICS codes out of the 8A program, which are areas that her company pursues business opportunities in. So what has happened is, and what's very interesting, Tom, is I always assumed in all the with the all the eighty clients that I was working with that it was a rebuttable presumption with emphasis on the word rebuttable, and I always presumed that somebody would be looking at that to ensure that applicants met both the social and the economic. The economic is pretty binary; it's just a math issue. But the social, I thought, was a little more complicated, and little did I know that SBA was not reading them at all. Right. So to put it crudely, there could be black 8A owners that are wealthy and don't have any disadvantage, but maybe presumed to be disadvantaged based on one criterion. And there could be white companies that are presumed not to be disadvantaged who are very poor and trying to get their companies out of nothing to get to establishment with federal contracts. I mean, that's kind of a cartoonish way of putting it, but is that what's going on here? I would say, well put. I can't improve on that at all. That's exactly what's going on here. Now, in applying to the Agriculture Department for certain NAICS codes, certain industrial codes, this company, Ultima, is not taking on the SBA, which administers the 8A program. In general, it sounds like they're taking a very narrow approach to trying to undo 8A parts of it at a single department. Correct. But this is going to have, as you know, broader implications. And in fact, SBA is already looking at how they're going to interpret social disadvantage. It's interesting because, as you know, when the 8A program was established, it was wide open. I mean, you could sell contracts, you could do whatever, you could get contracts of a limited value. And now there has been internally, through regulatory means, a narrowing of the 8A program but not through the court system like this has happened. The, the 8A program has, let's say, narrowed down, I'm not going to say because there was a lot of incidences going on of selling contracts and things like that where you know they had to do something. So there's been a continual narrowing of what the 8A program has been doing you know, from the heyday to now. But this is really severe on the impact on the 8A program. I first started following, they used to call it minority contracting many, many years ago in industry. And 40, 45 years ago, it was difficult to find contractors if you wanted to expand your business to 
people that were disadvantaged. But in that half century or so since those types of programs really got started, there are minority-owned companies with great technical, financial, and managerial resources that can compete with the biggest and the best companies. Fair to say? Uh, Yes, and they are. Absolutely. Which means that the 8A program and other similar programs in industry, in some sense, achieve the goal of equalizing that playing field. Yes, really good point. The interesting observation I have, though, is that the 8A program has continually had studies on it, though, that the success rate of those that it should be helping, the ones that don't have the resources in the 8A program, are not successful. After the nine-year program, there is a, a very low rate of success on continuation of those businesses. All right. So there are still challenges. We're speaking to Barbara Kanoski. She's the managing partner of Center Law and Consulting. And so this lawsuit at the Agriculture Department seeking to undo those so-called rebuttable characteristics, why do you think that has much more profound effect potentially on the 8A program than earlier efforts and the continual narrowing it that you mentioned that SBA itself is doing? Well, SBA is now going to have to look at each individual applicant and determine whether or not they're qualified. I've known applicants that had PhD from Harvard University, and the question may arise of, wait a sec, you have a successful company now, and you got a PhD from Harvard, so should you really be in the program at all? And I think they're going to have to really examine all those applications now and make that determination. All right. So your article, your blog is entitled, Could This Be the End of the 8A Program? What would a program do you think look like to replace it on the presumption that there are people that are disadvantaged of all stripes and that are deserving of an extra look for federal contracting? Well, I have an interesting observation, too, is maybe that by letting all the companies in, there are companies that should never be in the program. Obviously, the ones that have you know a lot of advantages shouldn't be in the program, but also those who can't succeed, maybe they should not be in the program too. So it's kind of interesting in that we're now looking at a little bit of a slice and dice of who should be in. They're not going to be reevaluating, I presume, those that have very little ability to succeed, but they are going to be evaluating the social disadvantage. But I think that the government likes to buy from those that it can buy from easily, particularly at year end. And, you know, there was a recent DOD solicitation where there were so many proposals that were submitted that they decided not to evaluate any of them because they couldn't evaluate the 200 proposals. So I think that now we're going to be looking at what's next. And I think that what's next is the Alaska Native programs because they have no restrictions on them whatsoever. And the government can always give them a contract. And when they're no longer small, they just add another one. So I think what's going to happen is the ADA program is going to be less desirable than the ANC program. Yeah, it's almost like Animal Farm. There are some companies that are more disadvantaged than other companies, and so it goes and keeps subdividing further and further. But on that issue of their lack of success after exiting the 8A program, I guess the question is, how does that compare to any other company of a similar size and maturity in its history and the success rate of companies in general that are that size that may not have been in 8A? That we don't really know. We don't know that. You're right. But if you are getting some source contracts or you're competing in a very limited pool for contracts, 
then after you're out of that very limited competition area and into the, the full world of competition and you can't survive, then that tells me maybe you shouldn't have been in the business to begin with. All right. So for those that are thriving, that are doing work for the government under the 8A program, what's your advice to them now to make sure they don't get rebutted you know, out of the 8A program? I like that. Rebutted. It's an action verb now. <laughs> I would say, well, SBA has issued guidance on submit your social disadvantage statement if you don't already have one. And like I said, those companies that I represented, they already had one. I'm on the forefront of this. So I would say get that statement in right away. And you're going to have to make it look really good. I'm not not talking about creating a false narrative, but I am saying that it's going to have to be, I assume we don't know what the guidance that the training that the SBA has given its staff on evaluating these essays, I think it's going to have to be very moving because one of the things that the plaintiff has asked for in the Tennessee case, Ultima, is to see all the narratives. And regarding the rebuttable presumption, there's language in the regulations that says that somebody else could file a action against SBA and say that they don't believe this company is qualified. Now, how you would be able to get that information or even know that they applied I don't see how anybody could contest that because the narratives aren't public and the application process isn't public. All right. So that means there's some FOIA going on. Uh, Yes, a lot. I'm assuming a whole lot. Barbara Konoski is the managing partner of Center Law and Consulting. Thanks so much. Oh, Tom, thank you so much. I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.